Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another inspiring edition of New Promise Church's weekly sermons. We are truly delighted to have you join us today. Whether you are a longtime member of our congregation or a first-time visitor, we extend a warm and heartfelt welcome to you. Each week, we come together in the spirit of fellowship and reflection to explore timeless truths, gain spiritual insights, and draw closer to our Creator. We believe that through the power of the Word and the messages shared here, we can find guidance, comfort, and a deeper connection to our faith. Before we begin, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to prepare your hearts and minds for the wisdom and inspiration that will be shared here today. Whether you're listening from the comfort of your home, during your commute, or as part of our congregation, we encourage you to engage with an open heart and an open mind. As we embark on this journey of faith together, remember that you are not alone. We are a community bound by our shared belief, and we are here to support and uplift one another. Now, without further ado, let us turn our attention to the message that awaits us in today's episode. Well, this is a point in our service where we usually take the off- offering. This is our a time of worship for us. We are not going to pass the plate today. We are going to ask that you take your offering when you leave and just put it in one of the boxes uh, outside the doors when you walk out today. Um, but I would like to pray and thank God for all that he's given us. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we never want to take for granted all that we have in this country in our lives we're so blessed by you we have such an abundance even those of us who may be struggling right now we're still super blessed more than most people in the world so we give thanks father for all that we have and as cheerful givers we give back to you today all that is yours and we ask that it will be used for the furthering of your kingdom to fulfill the Great Commission and to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I, I'm, I'm blessed with a, a proud father moment as I get to uh, introduce my son Danny to you this morning. Um, I was thinking back to some milestones in my life, and back when I was a young preacher, back in 1991, I was studying through Liberty University through my correspondence courses, and on May 10th, I drove down to Virginia to get my degree and to shake Jerry Falwell's hand. Newt, Newt Gingrich was the commencement speaker back then. And my wife couldn't come with me because she was ready to burst because she was pregnant with Danny. And he was due in June. So I was thinking back how I had no idea what God was going to be doing in my life with ministry. And to think that one day I was going to be up here preaching and that, that little kid in the womb there was going to be, I was going to be introducing him to the pulpit. So it's just amazing what, what God does. Um, I did not train Danny to be a pastor. I trained him to be a concrete leveler and a tuck pointer. And ever since he was a little boy, my wife homeschooled all of our kids from kindergarten through eighth grade. And they had the, I don't know if Danny thought it was a privilege, but he got to come to the job sometimes where other kids were 
doing arithmetic. He was learning how to use a cement trowel, but it was homeschool. And since he was a little kid, when he could reach the top of my truck, he was working for me, grabbing tools out of my truck. And so I trained him to be a concrete leveler, and he became a good one. He was running a crew for me, and it was kind of my hope that one of my four sons would take over my business. But one day, uh, I think Danny was in his late teens. He had been going to college for a couple years. He surprised me, and out of nowhere, he said, Dad, I think the Lord's calling me into ministry. We had never talked about it. It just was something that was a surprise to me. And I remember just saying, well, I think we better start praying about that. And um, by the grace of God and through the Lord's sovereignty, we, we had been going to Parkside. Danny was raised in Parkside, and he was mentored by some good people. And um, the Lord called him into pastoral ministry. And now he has his bachelor's degree, as you could see, his bio in the bulletin, he has his bachelor's uh, from Moody Bible Institute and his master's of divinity from Southern Bast Baptist Seminary, is it Dan? And he's been at Parkside for, for 10 years serving. And um, so I'm a proud dad, but what I have to always resort back to, as I tell you all the time, it's not about me up here and it's not about Danny up here, it's about the Lord. And um, it's, a, it's just such a good feeling to know that, as I've told you, I guard this pulpit. There has to be only sound doctrine. I'm going to be very careful who I allow up here. And it's just such a, a privilege and a great feeling to know that when I have my son up, come up here, I don't have to worry about a thing when it comes to sound doctrine. And I know that the Lord is going to use him. So it's, it's a blessing to have your son as your brother in Christ, and it's sure a blessing to have him as a co-laborer in the gospel. So I'm just very, very thankful to God today for that. Um, we're going to listen to a song now, and you can sing along to it if you'd like to, if you know it. It's a very contemplative song, and it is a prayer. And I want to ask you, how many of you want to hear from God this morning? Okay, we all do. We don't want to hear from Danny. We want to hear from God. We want God to be a conduit through him. So this song is a prayer. And we've been talking about prayer for many weeks now, that the effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So let's together really focus on the words of this song, and let's in one accord pray it to God, and let's watch him work in our lives today. You can remain seated. Well, good morning. I want to thank uh, all of you for having me here. Um, it is a, a sweet thing in a, in a bunch of different ways to be invited here, uh, to be welcomed so warmly uh, by just about every single one of you uh, that I interacted with. Um, my only disappointment this morning is I didn't get invited during live nativity week, and so that's, I would have loved to have been petting a donkey this morning, but that's my only disappointment. So it's been uh, a great joy to be invited here. Uh, I want you to know that um, it's not just me praying for my dad in this new position uh, that you've given him here in this church, but the leadership at Parkside Church where I serve, um, it's been a regular thing for us to be praying. Uh, for you, uh, for what God is doing here. One of the things that 
we stand by as we believe that God's, the, the word of God does the work of God among the people of God for the glory of God. And so regardless of who stands behind this pulpit, if the word is truly being preached, we can be confident that God is at work. And we believe what God's word says, that when God's word goes out, it never comes back void. And so thankful to know and trust and be confident uh, that my dad is preaching God's word to you and that God's word in your life is ultimately what's going to make you grow. It's what's going to nourish your soul. And uh, know that when we pray for you at Parkside, as we often do, uh, there's a sense in which we truly partner with you. Um, We have arms locked with you in uh, doing God's work just in different places in Northeast Ohio. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One of the responsibilities that I have and enjoy at Parkside is that I lead our Bible study. Last year, we went through Romans 1 through 8 for the year, and this year we're in 9 through 16, the rest of the book. And uh, as I was asked to preach, sometimes it's kind of a hard assignment because you've got a whole Bible to try and pick something to preach on. And I just want to tell you that Romans 5, 1 through 11 is just, I think, a high point in Paul's letter to the Romans, that in those 11 verses you have some of the greatest uh, joys and the experience of what it means to be a Christian and how we get to enjoy that if we're justified, if we've trusted in Christ. And so uh, that's why we are in Romans 5 this morning. I'll read these verses 1 through 11, and you can read along as I read aloud. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. We pray that this morning that you would make us a people who listen. What we have not, would you please give us? What we are not, would you make us? And would you shape us into the image of your son, Jesus, the one who, through faith, we can be justified in him and in him alone. We pray that you would speak this morning, that you would give us hearts that would receive and eyes that would see and ears that would hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we've already began this morning by talking about my childhood, for good or for bad, so I'm going to continue on with that here. I want to tell you that uh, when I was a teenager, one of the things that I most looked forward to was getting my driver's license. Getting a driver's license, uh, more than just the simple utility of being able to get from one place to the other, in so many ways represented freedom. Maybe there are some of you in this room who are teens or young people who look forward to that day or who have recently enjoyed that. Maybe if you're a little further along in life, it's helpful to remember uh, what a big shift in life that was when that happened. Because I think about when I was 15 years old, if I wanted to go anywhere, I had to beg my older brother to take me there. I'd just be like, just take me to the gas station. I just want to get out of the house. I, I want this kind of freedom where I can just go out and do something. And I remember when I got my driver's license, I received that precious plastic identification card that for good or for bad declared that I was now a licensed driver, that I would have the freedom to take a vehicle and do within reason whatever I wanted. You know, there's something in that, that new identification that I received that opened up a world of privileges to me that reminded me of this passage here in Romans 5. Because Paul, in this section of his letter to the church in Rome, talks about a new identification that the Christian has received that opens up to them a world of privileges. He's talking about this new identification of those who have been justified by faith. And in this section, all of the benefits that come along with that. Now, in the book of Romans, this topic of justification is not something that Paul just speaks of here, but it's really at the heart of some of the main themes and topics that he talks about throughout the letter. To be justified, in simple terms, is that you are declared righteous by God. And the wonderful good news in the book of Romans is that in chapters 1 through 3, Paul explains to us that whether you are religious or irreligious, that no one is righteous in and of themselves. That there's no one who can stand before God and say, I can actually pass the test of your moral standard. That there's no one who can actually stand before God with a righteousness of their own and be justified before him. That's the bad news of Romans that we learn in chapters 1 through 3. But right around the middle of Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us about this wonderful good news where he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law or apart from things that we can do. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Major theme in the book of Romans is that although in our unrighteousness we are guilty, that through the sacrifice, through the life and death of Jesus, to be justified is that God, when He looks at us, if we have faith in Christ, looks at us and says, not guilty because of who Jesus is, and what he's done. So that's what it means to be justified by faith and by faith alone. And Paul is at pains to explain exactly what that means, this righteousness that's been manifested apart from the law, apart from things that we can do, but freely offered as a gift in Jesus Christ. 
And once he's established what this justification is, in Romans chapter 5, in the verses that we study or that we read just this morning, Paul shifts from telling us what this righteousness is and goes on to then explain what this righteousness entails, the implications of it for our lives. You see that word in verse 1, it's therefore, since we have been justified. That's important because when we read this, you're going to read a lot of wonderful things about what it means to be a Christian. And we would miss the point if we think that all of these wonderful things are things that we have to try and accomplish for ourselves and try and take hold of or things that we can work towards. Paul says, therefore, since you already have been justified, here's what it looks like to live out this identity that is already yours in Christ. So in the plainest terms, I hope that you understand that if you are a Christian this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus, all the joys of justification belong to you in full here in this moment. And if you're not a Christian, the things that are listed here don't belong to you, but they could. And we'll get into that a little more now as we continue on. In this passage, I see in these 11 verses six prominent joys of justification or benefits of being justified by faith in Jesus. And those will simply be the six points that we'll work through this morning. Six joys of justification. Our first joy, our first benefit is what we see in verse 1. We see when we are justified, we get peace. We get peace. Each of us here knows that peace can be very hard to come by. Peace is one of those words that shows up in a lot of our Christmas carols and the the hymns that we sing about silent night and these songs that, um, interestingly enough, we see kind of the whole world kind of enjoys and sings these songs during the Christmas season. But in so many ways, there's, uh, it's almost... You see the stark contrast by the songs that we sing and the things that we try and celebrate around this Christmas season, but then you immediately go and watch the news and see the disastrous things that are are taking place and uh, all of the, the discord and the chaos and the lack of peace that we actually have in our world. So when we talk about peace or when we sing about it or we try and grab hold of some version of it around the Christmas season, All of us here, to some degree, can understand that there is, in each of our lives, um, at least a subjective sense of a lack of peace, or the fact that in our world, peace is missing, and in its place, so often we find chaos. Anxious people across the world seek inner peace in everything from yoga to essential oils. We have nations and governments grasping for international and domestic peace, whether it be in leaders or political programs. Maybe you're a parent here this morning and you're just on the brink of insanity trying to take care of your kids and figure out how to uh, keep your household together. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, We know what it is to long for that subjective feeling of peace, that everything's okay, that everything is going to be okay. In this passage here this morning, I hope that you not only see that the gospel offers us something like that, but actually that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the identity of being a Christian who is just justified offers us something even greater than that. Because rather than just a subjective feeling of being at peace, Being justified brings us into an objective reality 
in which we receive the peace of God because we are at peace with God. As Christians, we receive the peace of God because ultimately we are at peace with God. You see, the reason why our world is at such a lack for peace is because we have a world that is at odds with the God who made the world. We live in a world where things fall apart because our world is at odds with the God who holds all things together. So our lack of peace at a horizontal level, in every single way, we can always trace it back to some kind of a vertical discord with the God who made us, the God of peace. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 when he says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. The mindset on the flesh is actually hostile to God. And later in this very section in Romans 5, we see that Paul describes us as those who were enemies with God. It's what Paul, earlier on in the letter, he's describing essentially this cosmic courtroom where all of humanity stands before God. And in our unrighteousness, we are guilty. And it's not just that we are guilty before a God who is the judge of all, but our offense for which we're guilty is actually against the judge himself because he made us and he made us for himself and he made us to live according to his will and in a way that pleases him and and obeys him and lives for him and for his glory. But in our unrighteousness from the very beginning, Adam and Eve choose self over God. They choose their own way over his and they're unrighteous. And like David says, my sin is ever before me and is ultimately against God and against God himself. So we stand in this courtroom and we're guilty. And because of this, because of our guilt against God, we owe God this insurmountable debt because of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, this insurmountable debt is removed from our account when Jesus pays for it. Paul says in Colossians 1.20, says, Through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's this cosmic gap that exists between a righteous God and unrighteous people. And the God-man Christ Jesus, through his sacrifice of his death and through the perfection of his life, bridges that gap so that we who had our backs turned to God, who ran from God, can be reconciled to God. And because we're at peace with God in and through Jesus, we can experience the sweetness of a relationship God with God where we receive all of the peace that he has for us. And the beautiful thing that happens in that is that when we're reconciled to God, the kind of peace that we enjoy with God Because we're united to Jesus by faith, it's the same peace and harmony that God's Son has enjoyed with God the Father from all of eternity. That becomes ours when we trust in Christ. We we are reconciled to God, and because of that, we get peace, the perfect peace of Jesus. That's our first benefit. It's our first joy of justification is that we get peace. Secondly, we get access. You can see this in the first half of verse 2. 
our peace with God is this relational reality that we just discussed. And the second benefit of justification, or this joy of justification, is this positional reality that we enjoy. We gain access to this realm or this space of grace from once we, from where we were once restricted. A large portion of the people that Paul would have written this letter to in first century Rome would have been Jewish Christians. And for these Jewish Christians, this language of access would have um, most likely evoked the picture for them of the temple, this place where God's people could actually physically meet and dwell amongst their God. If you know anything about the temple, you know that there was this very inner part of the temple called the Holy of Holies that was marked off by this massive curtain. And in the Old Testament times, there was only the high priest, only the one person was identified as someone who could go through this uh, rigorous process of purification. And on behalf of the people, enter into the very holy presence of God and go before God as a representative of the people. And all of God's people, apart from that high priest, would have been really aware of the fact that that holy of holies was a place where they couldn't go because of their sin. That that was a place where they didn't belong because God is holy and they're not. And even the high priest could only enter into that place under these remarkable circumstances constant reminder to God's people that God is holy and they're not and that they need a representative but what happened on Good Friday at the temple in particular when Jesus utters those dying words of it is finished what happened to the curtain in that temple the curtain in that temple was torn from top to bottom to show that God was the one who tore the curtain and this curtain when it's torn it's this visible representation of that through the death of Jesus, what was once a restriction to God's people entering into his presence, what was once this inaccessible barrier, through the death of Jesus, now there is an open invitation to anybody who through the blood of Jesus wants to enter into the presence of God. What a beautiful picture of this now what was, in, was restriction now to Christians through Jesus becomes an invitation. Access into this grace in which we stand. Those who are in Christ are always in a state of grace. Those who are in Christ are always in a state of grace. I think that's what we see here directly in this passage. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says that we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We enter into this presence through Christ's shed blood for us. And because we enter into that through Christ and when we're united to him by faith and we're justified by him, by our faith, we always live in that state of grace. We always stand in that, in that state in which Jesus stands. We need that reminder, don't we? Because there's something in our hearts, something that's affected by that sinful desire that so often we have to try and do for God in order to earn his love, that thing that we have in us, that instinct to try and earn his favor or merit his love, 
we want to be able to say that we can kind of work our way into God's favor. And we fear that sometimes that we can sin our way out of it. But I think what this passage tells us is that because my justification has nothing to do with what I can do, everything to do with what Christ has done, I can be confident that I am perfectly and permanently positioned in the grace of God because I'm united to Jesus by faith. And that's where he always stands. We have access to God. Thirdly, we get hope. The third joy of justification. Well, these first two benefits are grounded in the past reality of our justification. In a way, this third benefit is grounded in this future implication of that justification. As Paul tells us about the hope of the glory of God, a future hope, the promise that we have that we will one day be glorified and perfected. This is very much a picture of the rhythm that should always be developing our lives as Christians. In a sense, we as Christians always have our head on a swivel. We're always looking back to promises kept by God in the past and then looking forward to promises perhaps not yet completely fulfilled. But looking forward, trusting that if God was good to his word back then, we can be confident that he'll be good to his word in the future because his promises never fail. We need to remember that because just like the Israelites in the wilderness, when we're overwhelmed by our present circumstances, we're so prone to forget what God has done, and it causes us to doubt what God in the future will do. Interestingly enough, Paul, as he talks about the benefits of uh, justification here, I think when we think about the times where we aren't clinging to God's promises, the times where we are fearful or the times where we doubt, we often get into, uh, rather than looking back and looking forward, we kind of get focused on the present. We get this myopic, self-centered, circumstances-driven view of our present circumstances. And those are the times when we most often fear or experience anxiety or um, don't functionally trust God that he has our best in mind. And the times when we're most tempted towards that is when we're suffering, when things aren't going according to our plans, when things aren't necessarily feel like they're going well. But interestingly, when Paul talks about hope here and the kind of hope for the future glory of God, the first thing that he addresses here is that we can have hope in our sufferings. Far from being something that diminishes our hope of glory, he describes suffering as something that actually contributes to it and something that we can rejoice in. It may be that we hear that and we have a hard time with that because we go, I don't understand how suffering can give me a hope of glory. If anything, suffering feels like it takes away from that. That may be because your idea of glory is things going all according to your plan, things being comfortable, things going well, your health being the way that you would expect it to be. All those sorts of comfortable, good, happy things that we project as glorious in our lives. But I think what we see here and what may rub us the wrong way is that Paul has a different idea of glory in mind for us. You see, Paul's picture of glory is this future and hope that we would look like Jesus. 
And oftentimes, more often than not, it's suffering that actually produces this Christ-likeness in us. And that's the tool that God uses to make us more and more like Jesus. Look here in these verses and see the way that Paul just describes a simply logical progression of how, beginning with suffering, we, we can see this process that leads to hope. He says that Christians can rejoice in suffering, and suffering inevitably leads to or produces endurance. You can think here of what James writes in James chapter 1 when he says, Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. It's a picture of the simple, if you were to exercise and you were to uh, place resistance against your muscles and initially it breaks down your muscle, but in order that in recovering your muscle will be built back up stronger than before. That's how God uses suffering in our lives. He never wastes suffering on us. Because he loves us, it's always working towards some greater end that would strengthen our faith and our endurance. And that endurance that is produced in turn produces character. This character that results from endurance is spiritual maturity. It's looking like Jesus. It's this Christ-likeness that God's Holy Spirit produces in us. And this suffering, which leads to endurance, which leads to character, it's the pattern by which God is shaping us into looking like his son, Jesus. And that is the ultimate future glory to which each one of us, if we're in Christ, that is the, the, the way that the story ends for us and exists on into eternity. You see, no matter what circumstances or suffering we encounter in our lives, we can know that the good work that God began in us, he'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, our justification is this initiation, it's this declaration of who God says we are in Christ. But we sit here in this room this morning, well aware, hopefully, or none of us are as aware as we should be, of though we are in Christ declared righteous, Morally, we're still unrighteous. We're still people who wrestle with sin. Paul gets into that in Romans 7. We're still people who are fighting this battle. And so we know that we're, we're not righteous people, at least in the moral sense, yes. When God looks at us in Christ, the legal declaration of us is that we are perfectly righteous because of his son. But that's what sanctification is through our lives. That's our justification. And sanctification is a slow and steady process of God rooting out those ugly sins that bubble up in all the areas of our lives and slowly but surely working towards this future hope of glory when one day we will see Jesus and when we see him, we will be like him. One day we won't have any moral unrighteousness. We won't think bad thoughts. We won't do bad things. When we're glorified, when we're in the presence of our perfect Jesus, That's our future hope of glory. And that's what God is moving us towards. And he uses suffering and hard things and painful things in order to move us towards that goal. Mark Vrogrop puts it well when he says that our experiences of suffering are not cul-de-sacs of sorrow, but they are bridges to God's character. God doesn't want us to just wallow in our suffering and then hopefully get delivered backwards out of it, but it's something that he's always using to move us towards this future hope. So we get hope. Fourthly, we get love. 
We can see this in verse 5. We see that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I wonder if you're here this morning and you can think of a relationship in your life where maybe you uh, in the past have felt like you, or maybe even you feel this way now, you're in a relationship where you're always at the risk of losing someone's love or their approval. Maybe for you it's a parent or someone that you look up to that you always feel like you've got to prove that you're good enough. Maybe that person, that authority, or that mentor in your life um, is constantly either implicitly or explicitly saying, you're not good enough. And you feel like you've always got to do better to try and build this resume that's good enough for them. Maybe for you it's a significant other. Maybe it's a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you feel like you're always at the risk of them leaving. And you feel like you've just got to be impressive enough. You've got to be good enough. You've got to treat them well enough that they would want to stay. I'm sure to some degree and in some relationship, we know what that feels like to some degree. And if we do, one of the things that we run the risk of is somehow projecting that kind of mentality on how we think about God our Father. We see him as some kind of withholding father who has his arms crossed, tapping his foot, waiting for us to be good enough, waiting for us to earn his love, expecting the world from us, and we never quite live up to what he requires. So we feel like we're just on this works righteousness treadmill, and we can never run fast enough to keep up with what God expects of us. If you feel that way, I want to tell you that you have a very wrong idea of what it looks like for someone who is justified by faith of how God your Father actually thinks about you. And I hope you see in this passage the very different picture of God's love poured out towards you through faith. Because here, Paul, in trying to reinforce the Christians' confidence in God's love towards them, he does not root his argument in the subjective sense of what I can do in order to earn God's love. But his explanation of God's love towards the sinner is rooted in God's objective and perfect love demonstrated towards me and demonstrated towards you and demonstrated towards us when we are at our very worst. Look at these verses. Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. When does God pay the ultimate price for you and I? When we are at our ugliest when we have nothing to offer him, when we wanted nothing to do with him, when we had our backs turned with him, to him and we were running the other way, that is when God pays the highest price to purchase us and to win us back to himself. That's when God loves us. It's while we're still weak. This is so counter to human nature, so different from our human experience of love. And that's what Paul points out here. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I'm sure most of us here in this room would like to think that um, if our spouse or if one of our children were in danger, that we would do whatever it takes, even lay down our own life in order to keep them safe or to protect them. But in your heart of hearts, if the opportunity were presented to lay your life down for a stranger, do you really think that you would do it? Or even beyond a stranger, someone who is an enemy, somebody who is a criminal, someone who is a murderer, 
Would you really lay your life down for that person? I think if we're honest, most of us would probably say no, or at least say that that would be a really hard decision to make. Because you would, it would cost you everything, and you would get absolutely nothing in return. That is the point that, that Paul is making here. God shows his love for us in this extremely sacrificial way when we had nothing to offer back to him. And God very purposefully does things in this way in his perfect plan because if we have nothing to offer God and he gives the costliest sacrifice to purchase us for himself, then this marvelous, matchless, magnificent, magnificent love, it has to be all of grace. And because it's all of grace and it's all about him, it's all to the Father's glory. This is the kind of love that has been poured out to us. And I love that Paul says that the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit because it's not a picture of the Holy Spirit meagerly portioning out in just barely as much as we need or as much as maybe God thinks that we deserve on any given day. But there is this super abundant outflowing of the love of God towards sinners that never ceases. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel, Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. It's a wonderful picture of the ongoing, superabundant, never-ending love of God poured out in Christ Jesus. And as Christians, we don't just visit that gift once and walk away from it, but we live our whole lives in the superabundant love poured out by God through his Holy Spirit. It's what we enjoy this morning, to know that God is actually here with us, pouring love into our hearts, and that offering never ends. We receive his love. Fifthly, we see here that we get assurance. We get assurance. See, assurance is a confidence or a certainty that we can have in the present of what will unfold in the future. The assurance that flows out of our justification is a confidence and a certainty that because God has saved us, we can be confident that he will save us. Because God has saved us, we can be confident that he will save us. One of the things that shows up here in these verses, and it's a theme all throughout Scripture, is this what we often call the already but not yet aspect of our salvation. We know that there are things, the most important things God has won and accomplished for us through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Something that has taken place in history, that it's accomplished, that Jesus says, it is finished, that if we put our faith in Christ, we are justified. Those things are accomplished. But what did we say before? We're looking forward to this future day where we're going to be delivered, when we're going to be glorified. We're waiting for Jesus' second coming. There are things that have already happened, but also there are things that have not yet happened in uh, completely consummating our future salvation. And the temptation in this already but not yet tension that we live in is that we may fear that God isn't going to carry us all the way home. It's that thing that we talked about before. We worry that somehow we might sin ourselves out of the grace of God that God might look at us and all of our failures and all of our imperfections and go, that was a project that I started and I don't think I'm going to finish it and move on to the next one. 
If we have that fear in our hearts, a passage like this can give us this confidence that God always finishes what he started. And that actually in our justification, in knowing what God has done for us to be declared righteous, it can give us supreme confidence going into the future. Verse 9, since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Paul offers this precious assurance about the future by making a simple argument from the greater to the lesser. And he's making the point here. Paul's saying, you guys, the hard part is already taken care of. God has already justified you through his son's blood. The hard part is already taken care of. One pastor illustrated it this way, and I found it to be really helpful. Imagine that for this Christmas season, you have somebody uh, very generous and very wealthy in your life who just wants to give you the best Christmas present they've ever given you. And they take you to the Ford dealership, and they go, I'm going to buy you the most loaded up pickup truck that this dealership has to offer. And they spend a hundred something thousand dollars on you and they purchase this truck and you get to pick out whatever you want and it's just to the nines the best vehicle you've ever seen in your life and you're finalizing the deal with the salesperson and uh the salesman says you know would you like to for 50 bucks i can put one of those big fancy christmas bows on the hood you know have it out in the parking lot for you before we go and at that suggestion, this gracious benefactor who offered you this gift just kind of blows up. They throw their hands in the air and they say, $50 for a decorative bow? That's absolutely ridiculous. And they storm out of the dealership, unwilling to complete the deal because of the salesman's suggestion. If someone is so gracious, so generous that they would be willing to pay that price to give you a gift, how much more confident could we be that $50 in relative comparison would be nothing to them? See, how much infinitely greater can we be confident that if God sent his son into the world to die for you while you were an enemy, while you were a rebel, while you wanted nothing to do with him, he paid that price for you when you were his enemy. Now that you're his child, now that you're his son, now that you're his daughter, how much more confident can you be that this relatively small thing of just simply carrying you through to the end, that, that he won't bring that about now that he loves you, now that, now that you're in his son, that you belong to him and his family. We can have supreme confidence in the character of God because of his extreme expression of love and grace towards us in the death of his son and in our justification we can look forward to our sanctification and ultimately our glorification with confidence because of that. See, that's the confidence, that's the certainty, that's the assurance that crowds out the accusations of the evil one. Those doubts that creep into our minds as they bubble up out of our sinful hearts. See, when we hear those words that creep into our minds and say, you're, you're not going to make it, you're not good enough, you're not actually saved. You, 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 you're not the type of Christian that you should be. When we hear those words, those accusations of the evil ones, the way that we extinguish those doubts 
is to look at the holes in Jesus' hands and look at the holes in his side and see Jesus hung up on that cross. And his death for us is the greatest apologetic for the love of God towards miserable sinners. Sinclair Ferguson really helped me with this quote that he he writes about this blessed assurance. He says, When I know that Christ is the one real sacrifice for my sins, that his work on my behalf has been accepted by God, that he is my heavenly intercessor, then his blood is the antidote to the poison and the voices that echo in my conscience, condemning me for my many failures. Indeed, Christ's shed blood chokes them into silence. The cross of Christ is the greatest apologetic for the love of God towards sinners. And when we're justified, we get confidence and assurance for the future. Sixthly, and lastly, and I think climactically, the final benefit of our justification is that we get God himself. Verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If I asked you this morning, if you're married, why did you marry your spouse? What would your answer be to that question? Please answer in your head. Don't say that out loud. (laughs) I'm sure we've got a lot of different answers to that question, but what I hope maybe your answers wouldn't be would be to say, I married my wife because she had a lot of money. Or, I married my husband because he had a really nice house. Or I married him or her because she had a really nice walk-in closet. Or I knew that there was the potential hope that they would give me children. Or you run down the list of all of these things that maybe could come along as benefits of being married. None of those things are bad things necessarily. They're benefits and privileges potentially of being married. But when we hear that, we know that that would be a superficial answer to the question. Why? Because when we marry someone, we marry them because of who they are, because we love them. And to neglect our love of them just to say that we simply want their gifts, that's, actually, that's, that's not a relationship. That's, that's a transaction. True love is when we enjoy the person themselves and then as a result of that, enjoy all of the privileges that come along with it. The greatest joy And the supreme benefit of belonging to Christ is knowing that he in turn belongs to us. The first question in the Westminster Catechism is what is the chief end of man? Or what is your ultimate purpose? And the answer in that catechism is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Can you say that your greatest joy if you're a Christian here this morning is that everything that there is to be found in God himself, that though you were once separated from him, you've been reconciled to him and now it is that relationship with the God who made you, that access that you have, the peace that you've received with him, that that relationship has been reconciled and restored and you can actually experience the joy of knowing God, of loving God, of being known and loved and embraced by God himself. I argue that that is the supreme benefit of our justification, that when we go from being guilty to not guilty, we're reconciled with God himself. And in his son Jesus, 
we receive all of the best, all of the supreme benefits of knowing and loving and being known and being loved by him. You see, the more that we realize this truth, that when we are justified, we receive God himself, the more that we will understand how immovable and impenetrable that kind of joy actually is when we're rooted in that reality. Because if I have God himself, and that is the supreme joy of my life, then you can take just about anything else away from me. And in the, the end scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. You can take my house. You could even take my wife and my kids, the things that I hold most dear in my life. But if I have God, I ultimately have something of eternal and infinite worth, something that nobody can take away from me. That's what Paul is saying at the end of Romans 8 when he's saying that nothing in death or life nor princes nor rulers nor anything can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 6 that he says he identifies himself as someone who has nothing yet possesses everything. That identity that we have is those who are justified and as a result, those who have God himself, we have something that is infinitely precious that no one can ever take from us. Peace and access and hope and love and assurance are all purchased and provided and wrapped up in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And if you put your faith in him, you receive every single aspect of that in its fullness. And if you're a Christian this morning, rejoice in that. Glory in that. When you sing these songs, worship as a result of that. Because that's who you are. You have the, identity, the identification card, and it's opened up this world of privileges to you. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, allow me to present to you the benefits package of being a Christian. If you put your faith in Christ, it doesn't cost you anything. You just repent of your sin and you believe and you trust in Jesus, and you receive it as a gift of grace. You come to him with empty hands. And in return, as a free gift, he gives you everything that you could ever want and anything that you could ever need. Trust in Christ this morning if you haven't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture that tells us these glorious truths about who your Son is and what he's done for us. We pray that as we consider this peace and access and hope and love and assurance and as we look to you yourself we would see our all in all wrapped up in Jesus all of the joys of justification found in faith and faith alone in him I pray that every believer in this room would just rejoice in that this morning that it would change the way that they look at their suffering their circumstances, the challenges in their lives, that they would see that they have the most precious thing that this life has to offer. And I pray for anyone who hasn't trusted this, that they would see the sweetness of that, the joy of that, the benefits of that, and simply receive that gift with empty hands. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen. If you'll stand, I believe we're going to sing one more song.
God's Word is living and powerful, and today it has helped me to feel more loved and more secure in my Lord. When you hear a message like that, it makes you want to go out and live for Christ, not because you have to, because you want to, because what he's done for us. Uh, for our benediction, I'm going to leave you with a quote in a scripture. The quote is in our bulletin. The faith that justifies gives rise to lives of obedience, not perfection, but growing holiness. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Go today in the joy of justification. God bless you.